2 Timothy chapter 3, would you stand as we read God's word together? Look at chapter 2, the last verse. We're going to start there. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They'll have the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as it was of those two men. You, however, you followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Father, I ask that you would help divide this word correctly, that you would teach us tonight. Lord, that you would surprise us with your Holy Spirit. As Jason prayed earlier, Lord, with your encouragement, with your correction, with your rebuke, Lord, train us for righteousness through your word. Give us what we need from you to be your people. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start at the back of this passage for just a second. Look at verses 12 and 13. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. This is not the most encouraging passage in the New Testament. Uh, when you listen to other folks preach, I think you, you listen to some of the, the, the most influential godly pastors and teachers. I think you'll, you'll hear them kind of take on the tone of the passage, and that's because you have to. So this is a heavy passage, a weighty passage. You came on a night when we were digging into a heavy passage and a weighty passage. And so... A lot of this will be heavy and weighty. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Who here was a youth group kid? A youth group kid. Yes. Who went to a, who went to a high school church camp at least once? Don't worry. I'm not going to ask you for your experience. I just want to see a show of hands. That's great. Who here had that moment where you were like, I love Jesus more than my girlfriend or boyfriend, more than anything in the whole world at church camp? Anybody have that moment? 
Yes, that's right. Okay, you desire to live a godly life and you were like, I'm gonna go back to my high school and I'm gonna be like such a good Christian. You desire to live a godly life. Some of you, you woke up just recently before work and you were like, I'm serious about Jesus. I'm super serious about Jesus. Jesus is most important. Some of you have come back from being far, far away from Jesus and you're like, he's most important. Look, you desire to live a godly life. Some of you have been walking with the Lord for a really long time. And you're like, when people ask you to share your testimony, you're like, well, my testimony's kind of boring. Like I got saved when I was eight and like I just trust Jesus. And no, that's okay. You desire to live a godly life. You probably have the best testimony. You've been saved and preserved and walking by the grace of God with him for a long time. You desire to live a godly life. So if that's you, if you're like, I desire to live a godly life. Yes, I have my struggles. I have this and that. Look, look one more time at verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, I wish the rest of the verse said, will have a great time. It's going to be awesome. The rest of the verse says... All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And you think, like, why didn't someone tell me the whole gospel before I signed up for this? Well, you got ambushed by God anyway. Like, you were probably doing fine, and then, or you had some bad times happen or whatever, and then God ambushed you. He radically saves you. You begin to walk with him. And then as the scriptures unfold, you realize, man, I thought I was getting out of all kinds of stuff. And you were, but it's out of the frying pan and into the, into the fire. Like you're, you're, you're in a whole different realm now. You have signed up to be in the minority. You've signed up to be in a really small club. And everything else is flowing this way. And you're going this way. You're the guardrails on a golf cart track in Panama City. You're going to get scratched up. Like, that's you. You're going to get beat up. That's what we signed up for. Because why? Because we are imitators of Christ Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross. We're following in the master's footsteps. And he said, hey, if the world hates you, they don't hate you, they hate me. Now, that's not a license for us to be obnoxious. That's not a license for us to wave our Christianity around in a, in a political way or in some other weird ways. No, we're supposed to be able to give an answer to people with gentleness and respect. We're supposed to live quiet lives among the pagans, the scriptures teach us. But tonight, as we asked the question in the survey, if you're on the group me and you answered it, is the world getting better? Because it says here that we'll be persecuted. And then verse 13 says, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now the evil people, that's obvious. We'll just throw out the most obvious, the lowest hanging fruit, Hitler, evil people. 
they're going to go on. Everybody, pretty much everybody in the world can identify like that's an evil person uh, when you get down to like the nitty gritty of the most evil. But the imposters, now that's interesting. Those are people within the church. So you got the outsiders and the insiders. And it says of the outsiders, the evil people the ISIS of the world, those kinds of folks, to put it in modern day terms, the rioters, the, the ones who caused the riots, like all the different people that are just like, yeah, 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 we're gonna be the evil people, like the mob mentality, that's gonna get worse, is what this says. But it also says that the ones inside the church, the imposters are gonna go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So, your answer to the survey, do we have that, Brandon? Yes. You people are super pessimistic. Um, yeah, 221. I cut it off a few minutes before it ended. The, the numbers went up. But 20 of you are like, the world's getting better. And, um, and bless you for thinking that. And 221 of you are like, it's bad. It's bad out there. So bad. So I, I really would like to have a conversation with like all 241 of you and figure out why you put that. Is there something particular or were you saying like, I know what passage we're using and it says things are going to go from bad to worse. If you look at social cultures and, and, and influencers, like if you were to Google this on TED Talks, you would have folks who would stand up for 20 minutes and give the most well put together presentation on why the world is getting better. And they would quote things like, live birth rates are up. Super poverty is down. Malaria is going down. Malaria meds are going up. And the list would go on and on. And they would give you these reasons as to why they would say the world is getting better. That has to do with comfort and pleasure. That does not have to do with the spiritual state of people. What Paul is talking about here through the Holy Spirit is that people love the darkness. And more and more folks are gonna run and run and run towards the darkness, which means if you are a person of the light, and by the way, that's biblical language. The author John was the author of light. He talks about light in John, in first, second, third John, and in Revelation, he uses light metaphors all the time. And so if you're a person of the light, a person in Christ, just know that it's still night outside. And the dawn is not yet here. And in the meantime, you're gonna stand out more and more and more as it becomes darker and darker and darker. So, we continue on. And in this, in this passage, I wanted to go with the end, and then I wanted to come back to that very first verse we read, which is actually in chapter two, verse 26. The reason that the world is dark is because, I'm gonna use more biblical language here, it says, I'll start, I'll read verse, the verse 25 because it kind of makes more sense putting together. Correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses. Ever since Genesis chapter three, the fall of man, the world has not been in its right mind. When a person comes to Christ, we think of an existential experience. There was something dead in them and now they are alive. But also what the scriptures teach is that a person's mind 
kind of has this, this shedding that happens. And the Bible uses this language often. When someone comes to Christ, they come to their senses. The most famous story about this is the prodigal son. The prodigal son is off and he's eating out of a pigsty and he's doing all kinds of stuff that he never imagined him doing, especially as a good Jewish boy and especially, especially as a privileged Jewish boy. He was doing a whole bunch of stuff that would have made him unclean and it says he came to his senses. There's something about when a person comes to Christ that their thinking changes also. Yes, it is an existential experience and something does happen in your heart that is invisible to people, but also the brain begins to engage in a different way. Romans 12 is the most famous passage about this. Renew your mind that you may know how to test and approve what the good and pleasing will of God is. And so we, we shed this layer through the power of the Holy Spirit and we're able to come to our senses and we begin to see things differently. And the problem is that the rest of the world doesn't see them any differently than the whole bunch of other people. You're now in the minority when you come to your senses. And so with more people in the world, with less people knowing the Lord, with more people pursuing pleasure, and you say, well, they're pursuing good things. They are pursuing good things. Getting rid of malaria, having more live birth rates, all those kinds of things. But people are pursuing pleasure and comfort, and that is the God. They're still not in their right mind. They have not come to their senses. And so, we look at verse 1 here. But understand this, that in the last days... There will come times of difficulty. So, the world has not come to its senses, but you have, many of you have. You've come to your senses. You've been born again. You've been bought with a price. You've come to your senses. You're thinking differently. You're seeing differently. And you're like, man, I have this new purpose, this new hope, this new grasp on life. And it's incredible. And it's all about Jesus. And you're marching towards Jesus, but the rest of the world doesn't see them very, it doesn't see the things like you see them. And so it says that at the end times, the last of days, there will be difficulty that comes. That leads us to our next survey. How many of you did the surveys in here? How many of you? Yes, okay, this is great. Um, and then apparently a lot of people who are not here. I think a bunch of you did them though. Um, this is like, I'm not very good at getting you to raise your hands. That's fine. Okay, let's go to what you put about the last days. So, by the way, this is not grammatically correct and I was like, well, I can't change the survey now. Uh, it was sent. The Bible mentions living in the last days, and I think we are not yet in them. 53 of you said we're not yet in the last days. 107 said the last days started at about the time of Jesus. 62 of you said that maybe we're starting to be in them. In verse 1 here, Paul says, understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. So, Paul says in about 60 AD, it was the start of the last days, like the last days had started. Here's what I want you to do. I'm going to hit pause and I'm going to have you get with a couple of folks around you. And there's one verse I want you to look up that I think actually gives more clarity to, uh, to this little, little idea. So I'd love for you to look up 1 John 2.18 and see if this idea of last days and we are in them. We are in the last days. See if you can get a little bit better working definition of that. I'll give you about 90 seconds. Ready, go. You're going to read it and just try kind of discuss it. 
right, let me interject for just a second. Whenever you read John, any of the John books, whether it's John, the gospel, first, second, third John, or Revelation, just know that John was old when he wrote all of those. And uh, I, I believe in a dual authorship where God used the whole person and yet gave his whole revelation. We have exactly what God wanted us to have through exactly the person that God wanted us to hear it from. And so we have a divine message through a real person. So you get a little bit of that person's personality in there. And so John is just gonna say it like it is. If you're, ever wanting, if you're that person that's like, just cut to the chase, tell me what's up. Go read any of John's writing because he's gonna cut right to the chase. John says, children, and he can call anybody children. He's like 90 when he writes this. So children, it's the last hour. You've heard that the Antichrist is coming? Oh no, there are many Antichrists that, are, that have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. I mean, he's making it pretty clear. He said, look, when Jesus ascended to heaven on the Mount of Olives, the clock started. And the clock's been running. And every second that the clock runs is a second closer to the Lord coming back. And so it may not be the last hour like you and I like to think of the last hour. To me, this last hour is like algebra in eighth grade and that clock on the wall that would never get to the end of the period. Like how much longer do I have to sit in this class? Like it's a slow moving clock by our standards. But we're in the last hour. It is an urgent time to be alive. It is an urgent time to be a Christian. God has not wasted his efforts on you. He has not put you in a time that doesn't matter. He chose you for such a time. And I hope you cherish that. And I hope you see, I've got a great purpose in being here. Otherwise, he would have just sucked you up right when you became a Christian but he left you here in the last hour to bear witness to him, which is a good pause and reminder to think who's in my life that I need to be sharing with, that I need to be praying for. Now, in the last days, and it is the last days, and that's the biblical definition of the last days, we're in them. And there's gonna be difficult times for Christians. And why is there gonna be difficult times for Christians? Because you've come to your senses, you have turned about and now you are going this way, but the whole world is rushing by you going this way. And they're saying in a loud voice, I think you've lost your mind. And you're saying as you go this way, I think I found it. And it is this giant collision of the worlds. And he says, Here's what's gonna happen in the last days. And we started off at the end, it's going to increase. What he says here is going to increase. And I think when we read this next passage, all 19 indictments of what's gonna happen with people, I think you'll see like, oh, that is happening. So let's look, look at verse two. 19 things he's gonna list here. He says, in the last days, which we're in, this is going to increase. People will be lovers of self. I don't have my phone up here with me, but you know you can take pictures of yourself. It's amazing. Like, and then you take like more. 
And then you take like, a, like with all your people. And who's the first person you look at in a photo, a group photo? Who is the first person you look for? You. Yeah, I look for me. I'm like, this is a great picture. Everybody else could be like, oh, like, you know, like blurry, whatever else. I'm like, look at this photo. This is awesome. We have, a, we have technology to promote self-love. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money. I mean, that one doesn't even need talking about. Proud. Yes. Like, most of you grew up getting trophies for not doing anything. Like, proud, arrogant, abusive. You know, that wasn't in the list. None of those folks who, who have done the is the world getting better list include any type of abuse and say, oh, that's going like way down. I mean, you've been, you can get abused now through text, through social media, through, I mean, you name it. Like you can get abused and never even meet the person. I mean, it's through the roof. Disobedient to their parents, and you might think that's silly. You might be that person. Ungrateful. I mean, you think about it, like Heather and I, we bought this 2014 Forerunner a few years ago, and it was like two years old, and I was kind of embarrassed to drive it to church because I was like, this is a really nice car. It's got like leather seats. Like it's, it's got like the little guy in the seat that blows cold air on you, and then you flip the switch, and it's got the little guy that blows warm air on you, and you're like, what a car. And we're like, we have arrived. Like, it's, this thing's awesome. And it's got like this incredible four-wheel drive system that Heather didn't care about, but I did. Like it's an, it's an awesome car. I put some off-road tires on it. And I was like, I love this car, but I was embarrassed to drive it to church. And one of my buddies who I worked with said, why? He said, the 16-year-olds have nicer cars. And I was like, oh yeah, they do. <laughs> like, we just want the next thing. And now I'm talking Christians ungrateful, unholy. Do you listen to workout music? I listen to workout music some. I like, I go on my, my, my iTunes and I like type in workout list and, uh, and I'm like, oh, that's, that is not good. What that is not, it is not holy. Like some of the songs I'm like, if my mom walked in here and saw me working out listening to this, she would say, I have failed as a mother if Heather walked in and heard some of the words before I could turn it off, she would be like, you are not sleeping with me tonight. Like she would like, I mean, like, like some of the stuff is so, is so terrible. It's so bad. I don't want to name some of the songs that are out there. Like it's just, it's shameful on us as people. Heartless unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal. I mean, think about like just a video game. Like the more brutal you can make some of them, the more money you can make. Not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. And then I think the way that this is laid out in a literary fashion, I think that Paul, in the 18th one of these, sums it all up. And you could go back through and you could look at the Greek layout of this, you could look at the literary structure, but I think Paul sums all of these up 
by saying this next line. He says, in the last days, there's going to become difficulty because people are going to love pleasure rather than God. The Greek word for pleasure, let me show you the, the Greek word. Some of, you, uh, some of you who are like, we're in Greek life for so long, you could probably read this, but um, it's philodonos. And philodonos, it's two words. So this is the first word. This is phile right here, and this is donos. So phile, you may know that from like Philadelphia. This, what this means, lovers of pleasure, and this is what, what Paul says the world is in the first century and is going to become even more. So this, this idea right here is they're going to be so close to pleasure, to donos, that they're going to be brothers with it. They're going to find their lives related to pleasure. Philodonos is lovers of pleasure. It means I'm related to the pursuit of what makes me comfortable. If you looked at the whole world, the whole world by and large is related to the pursuit of what makes me comfortable. And it's a dangerous game to play. I, I, I think that this survey kind of helped spur this on, but show the survey about the excitement and the calm. Yeah, some of you, I said, who, who wants an exciting life and who wants a calm life? 70 of you are really tired and you were like, I just want a calm life. And, uh, and 180 of you were like, bring it, bring it. I don't like the office anymore. Or if you're working at home, you're like, I hate it. You're like, bring it, give me, give me excitement. Um, you, by the way, were the exact opposite of the international survey that went out. The international survey that went out was 70-30. 70% said, I want a calm life, and 30% said, I want excitement. Look, some of you answered this based on your relationship with a pursuit of pleasure. And when it came to excitement, you were like, I want to travel, and I want to get married, and I want to do married things, and I want to go on a honeymoon, and I want to have family, and I want to do all this other stuff, and like, I want the money, and I want the vacation home, I want the beach home, and the mountain home, and, uh, and I want all these things, like this pursuit of pleasure. And some of you with the calm, you were like, I just want to like have my coffee in my nice chair and like my nice place, and it was also a pursuit of pleasure. The right answer, and I think there is one, and I, I give uh, Andrea, there she is over there, she also won an award tonight. I give Andrea credit for this because she texted me and said, I think there should be a both. I actually think the right answer from a Christian standpoint is a little bit of both. I want all the excitement that there is of a life where my hair is on fire as I pursue the Lord and live on mission for Him. But I also want the rest that I need to recover and to refuel and to be that person that God has called me to be. But none of that is a pursuit of these pleasures. Look, a pursuit of pleasure, if that is your goal in life, 
It, it, is, it will be a law of diminishing returns. I promise you, you will acquire one thing and you'll think that's going to make me happy and then you'll forget about it and you'll want to acquire another thing and then you'll think I need three things and then you'll think, well, those things didn't work. I need this thing. And if you go back, your very first thing you acquired was actually like the most satisfying of all your things. And after that, everything else just got like a little bit less and a little bit less and a little bit less. And this whole idea of this pursuit of pleasure is actually a trap by Satan. He wants you to take your mind off of the things of the Lord. He wants you to put your mind on you, and he wants you to pursue you with all that you have. And, and, and I think the best thing he can do is have you do that and still come to church and still think I am right with God. It is the law of, of diminishing returns. C.S. Lewis talks about this in the screw tape letters. He says the goal of the enemy is to increase desire while diminishing pleasures. You know, the pleasure culture is it's pursuing you. It's pursuing you with all that you've got. And the pleasure culture, it's a cheap New York City backstreet knockoff. Every Tuesday night, I go home and I think about you, and Heather can attest to this, I think about you until like it's 12.30 at night and I just can't think anymore. And then I go to bed and I, I wake up thinking, I wonder what they thought and I wonder how they're doing and I wonder if they're following the Lord. And you know what? There's no greater joy in like pouring yourself out for the Lord and emptying yourself for Him and I look around and I see some of you are leading small groups and some of you are working with students and some of you are on the hands team here and some of you are on the worship team and the welcome team and the prayer team. And you know what I'm talking about because you give. You give for the Lord and it, you get more than you could ever hope for in trying to acquire pleasure. That is upstream living. In verses six through seven, he says that in verse five, he says that those people, the lovers of pleasure, some are gonna have the appearance of godliness. They're gonna deny its power, avoid such people. And actually the language there is pretty strong. The idea could possibly mean you excommunicate them from the church. And among them, are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. This, this idea, if, if we have a church that is a pleasure-pursuing church where it's all about me, and every Bible study I hear is all about me. And every time I open my Bible, it's, God, what should I do today for me? What we end up doing is we have this idea. It's called antinomianism. We begin to be an antinomian culture, which was prevalent in the first century. And the idea is we begin to start saying, God didn't really mean that. And God didn't really mean this. And God didn't really mean this because those things get in the way of my pursuit of pleasure. And so we call ourselves Christians and we claim Jesus, but we start dismissing things that God tells us are true and right and good. And their end result is a deconstructed church. And it no longer resembles 
the upstream, come to my senses. I see the glory of Christ. It now resembles the culture. Church people can become so easily influenced by the pleasure culture that he gives an example here. Just as Janus and John Braze opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind, disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. There were two men in the Old Testament, Janus and John Brace. If you look up their names in your Bible, you'll never find them. Janus and John Brace are in extra biblical material. They're in Jewish material and they're very famous. So they probably existed. Their names just aren't in the Bible. But it goes back to Exodus chapter seven. In Exodus seven, Moses and Aaron walk up to Pharaoh and they have this staff. They throw the staff down. And what does the staff do? And it becomes a serpent. What do Pharaoh's magicians do? They also have a staff and they throw it down and it becomes a serpent. Do you know who those magicians' names are supposed to be? Janus and Jambres. That's what extra biblical material will tell us that these two men were the famous magicians that took on Moses and Aaron. And so they did that. And then the water was turned into blood and Janus and John Bray said, we can do that too. And they turned the water into blood. And then there was a plague of frogs and Janus and John Bray said, we too can produce frogs. And so they produce frogs. And it goes on until finally there's this plague of gnats and Janus and John Bray say, we can't do the gnats. And they couldn't do any more of the plagues. So they start in Exodus 7 and they end in Exodus 8. And the moral of this story is there are a lot of people in the church that say, you don't really have to live upstream. You don't really have to live fully for the Lord to experience him. You can kind of pursue you and it's fine. You can miss some church. You can miss some quiet times. You can miss some opportunities to share your faith. You can kind of fudge on like your views of, of what's anti-cultural with sex and sexuality or you name what it is. It's fine. It's totally fine. Look, we do it and we're fine. That's the Janice and John Bray way, but eventually those folks get found out and God is the one who casts judgment on those folks. You may have friends that are like, you're too Christian. You're, you're too into this thing. Just be like me, like a kind of a nominal Christian. Don't give in. In fact, I want you to look up one more set of verses and then I'm going to wrap it up and you're going to do this like you did before. Look at Galatians 6, 7 through 9 in the same groups you had before. I'll give you a couple of minutes. Galatians 6, 7 through 9. Ready? Go. Let me encourage you. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, he also reaps. The one who sows to his own flesh, the one who is a brother of pleasure, that person, from his flesh, he will reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. The whole world has lost its mind. And to use biblical language, many of you have come to your senses. 
And it's the rest of the world that thinks you're crazy. It's like the David Foster Wallace moment. If you can put that up, Brandon. It's like the David Foster Wallace moment from his famous uh, commencement address. There, there are two, these two young fish and they're swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods, and, who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit and then eventually one of them looks at the other and goes, what the hell is water? You know what water is. You know what world you live in if you're in Christ. It's our job to ask the rest of the world, how's the water? In Isaiah 52, verse 7, it says, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. If you want the beautiful life, it is not the pursuit of you. It is not the pursuit of pleasure. If you want the beautiful life, it is the pursuit of the one who is beautiful. It's the remembering that he's the one that saved you. He's the one who redeemed you. His name is Jesus and he is King of Kings and he is Lord of Lords and there is no one more lovely than him. And he sees your plight and he sees what you're in and he's put you there for a reason and he has not left you abandoned, but he is walking with you. And he's called you to a beautiful life. And he looks at you and he says, your feet are beautiful. Let me guide you and walk with you and show you some people to ask them how the water is and they won't know what you're talking about. Let me do the work from there just like he did in you. the rest of the world. They need us because they need Jesus. And yes, the world's going to get harder and harder to be a Christian. And if you get married and if you have kids and you bring them into the world, you're going to bring them into an even more difficult world. And the world is going the opposite direction and they need you. They don't need one more person in the pursuit of pleasure, in the pursuit of self. They need somebody in the pursuit of the one who pursued them. But maybe there's a few of you who would say, I don't know that I've come to my senses. This is new to me. I'm not sure what this is all about, but it's appealing. Well, I'll give you a verse that back in January of this year, we decided it would be our theme verse or passage for the whole year. And it's Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, where Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It's an exhausting life to pursue you. It's an exhausting life for me to pursue me. And it will end in exhaustion and failure, no matter how much I acquire or succeed. But it is an exhilarating, wonderful, beautiful life to pursue the one who first pursued you. 
And that's Jesus, the name above all names. If you've been stuck and you've been in a pursuit of you, we've got some folks that'll be over here near the back on the sides that'll be happy to pray with you. Our worship team is gonna come and gonna lead us in a couple of songs. And I think it's a great night to uh, our worship team of Will is gonna come and lead us. What's that? The whole team. Okay, I just saw you. All right, the whole team. Will was like trying to not interrupt the moment. The whole team. But let's sing to the one who first loved us, who forsook the pleasures of heaven to give us eternal life. Father, I ask that you'd move in our hearts. You'd help us to sing to you. You'd help us to repent and forsake moving in the direction of the rest of the world in this pursuit of pleasure. And we would, Lord, we'd realize the fallacy of that pursuit and the emptiness of that pursuit and the beautiful life that is the pursuit of you. And may we give ourselves to you because you gave yourself to us. And that's where the greatest joy is found in, in running after you. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.